one of the most spoken about things in the world of leadership and relationships is the idea of vulnerability, becoming vulnerable. There's a particular speaker named Brene Brown who did a smashing TED talk. I think it's called The Power of Vulnerability. It's one of the most watched TED Talks ever. And in it, she demonstrates how vulnerability is a key ingredient to any healthy relationship and a key component of any good leader. So I want to explore through the eyes of certain texts the the notion of vulnerability as we experience it and um, how it impacts and can impact our spiritual growth. And noting how vulnerability may actually be a crucial component of uh, spirituality and developing our own connection to a higher, a higher power, to Hashem, to the Bura which is put to practice in the Rambam. Before we go into the Rambam, in his classic text on Tshuva, Maimonides, I want to discuss that actually the word vulnerability conjures up a series of different connotations and they have subtle nuanced differences between them. For example, vulnerability essentially, if you think about it in the terms of a military sense, it means that you're prone to attack, which means that you have your defenses down. So borrowing from that to the life of interactions, me becoming vulnerable means I let I let go of my defenses, which of course will make me prone to attack. So why would a person want to do that? There's one aspect of what vulnerability implies. Vulnerability also implies an acknowledgement of weaknesses. Um, vulnerability implies a capacity to be genuine and honest with the reality of who I am. There are all these multiple connotations of what vulnerability may imply. As you can hear, the planes in the background because I want to be vulnerable with my distractions, are the Air Force training I'm imagining for Yom Ma'at or for Yom HaZikaron when they do a very impressive, spectacular flyover. But for the moment, let us remain grounded in the idea of vulnerability. So there are many different components to vulnerability. The Rambam over here, we'll see if he's dealing with that or not, but he says something which seems to be a very big expectation on us as people. And he's discussing this in the laws of tshuva, which is tshuva, the word means, it's often translated as repentance, but that word has only, I suppose, either no connotations or very archaic connotations for us in the, in the, in like, in the contemporary, contemporary world. Tshuva means a reclaiming of our core identity. Tshuva means to go back. Go back to what? Go back to a state of reconnection to our essential core selves. And in that process, of course, we become reconnected to the spiritual vibrations of the universe. So we become in sync with the universe on all its different levels, from the physical to the emotional to the spiritual. And chuva means to access that. Now, how do you become 
prone to be doing tshuva, you become distracted. And you become distracted in this thing called chait. Now, chait, again, is translated often as sin. But when you say the word sin, it becomes very Christological, and the connotations are people standing at preachers at um, standing up at pulpits and saying things like sinners you're going to hell where in Judaism that is completely contrary and antithetical to our notion of what chait, chait comes from the word lahti, which means to become uh, to miss the target to become misaligned and therefore for us the entire purpose of life is alignment and when we become misaligned so then we can't access the reality of existence and and we become, there's many different consequences to that. We become disengaged, we become distorted. We may even become filled with fear and anxiety at a certain point in time. So we want to become grounded and aligned. So a person does something wrong, what do you do? There's this thing called tshuva. You can reconnect. What about, what were the components? So how does it occur? So the, the Rambam over here writes, and this is already quite into his work on tshuva. This was already in the second chapter, in the fifth halacha. And he's discussing a component of the tshuva process. And I'm going to read you the words, and then we're going to see how we respond to them. It is a um, very praiseworthy, it's very recommended that a person who's in this process of going back, reconnecting, that he should confess his misdeed in a public forum. And he should inform everybody about what he's done wrong. And you should reveal what you've done to other people, how you've wronged them. And you should say to the assembled crowd, I've done something wrong to this person. And actually discuss and explicitly state what you did wrong. And now I'm returning and I regret having done that. Pretty impressive. Mm. Who's got the guts to do that? It seems quite a gutsy thing to do. And then the Rambam goes on and says, and a person who is arrogant and doesn't want to do this, in the Mechasib Shav, he tries to cover over, wipe underneath the carpet the negative parts of what he's done. Ainchivasa Gemurah, it restricts him. He doesn't have a complete process of regaining. And that's expressed in, in, in a verse which says a person that covers over the stuff that he's doing wrong will not be successful. So this is, this is quite jarring. It's pretty jarring. In other words, does that mean really I have to like be open about this stuff I mean and what, what is the point and there's, there's a key line in this Rambam which I think means we'll, we'll explore it he says that and if you if you become caught in something called Gava which we translate as arrogance but we'll see if we can if we can deepen that and doesn't tell them in other words what's stopping What's stopping the person from getting there? He seems to help us to understand the, the, the process. What's stopping us from getting there is Gaiva. And Gaiva, as we've often noted, is what the modern world calls good self-esteem. Good self-esteem is what the, the spiritual world looks at as being something which is in, insanely unhealthy. 
And as we've pointed out perhaps together many times before, the reason why good self-esteem is insanely unhealthy is because good self-esteem ironically becomes synonymous with intrinsic worthlessness. The way good self-esteem works is on the premise that the person involved in the good self-esteem quest is essentially worthless. And because he is essentially worthless, he requires external output and external feedback to gain a sense of self. There is no sense of self without that. And therefore, self-esteem is a contingency based on certain external attributes, attributes which then scaffold the self, giving up, which will always only be a temporary lift. For example, self-esteem may be based on a person's intellectual prowess. And when he succeeds in his intellectual endeavors and he gets fantastic marks on a test or he publishes a paper or he gets a fantastic result in his um, thesis, he feels great. Obviously, if he fails and he doesn't succeed, he feels terrible. It's a pendulum swinging from side to side. But either way, the sense of worth is externally ori- orientated and not internally, meaning he's in a balance. If he does well, he's good. If he doesn't do well, he's bad. If a person hinges their sense of self and worth on their social acceptability, that's great when they've got friends and people like them. But when they don't, then it will plummet. And again, it will be on this roller coaster. If a person does it on his looks, looks tend to change, certainly over the course of time. When you're all 93 you won't be looking in the mirror thinking about your ripped guns or your six-pack. Your body by that time would have lost a lot of its muscle mass. You'll be way shorter than you are now. Your bones will be fragile. And your sense of self based on looks is ain't going to go very far. Unless, of course, you pride yourself on bent over wrinkled faces. <laughs> so everything that that that's externally, and externally I mean, it essentially says that there is no, you have no internal worth intrinsic worth. Your worth has to be justified by looks or by smarts or by social acceptability or by wealth. But ultimately, you can't take that with you. So those are all temporary things which scaffold the self and give us an illusion of worth, which is not intrinsic because it's, it's temporary. So that means really, I'm not worth anything, but as long as these things are present, I can gain some kind of temporary worth. And the reason why the Western world is so um, caught up in self-esteem is because in a strongly dominated capitalist society where value is measured by, by output, coupled with a secular perspective that there is no intrinsic worth to a human, that's going to facilitate um, a need for people to get some sense of being worthy, otherwise they won't be able to function. So the Western world has set up a system which works within its paradigm, which is you are essentially worthless. Your worth is measured by some kind of external um, metric. And therefore, as long as you are outputting, then you can have that worth. You will always be in a pendulum. You will always actually feel deeply unworthy fundamentally. And when you stop being productive, then your life stops being meaningful. And if you happen to be utterly unproductive, for example, you're an old person in some kind of facility, then you actually have no worth. And if you're on a life support system, better pull out the plug because there's nothing left, which ironically is a destruction of the worthiness of humanity and differentiating it and acknowledging that there's some gift to being human. 
declaring that no, there is none, and our productivity or whatever those other attributes of self are, are our fundamental origins of any kind of meaning and value to who we are, which is, is pretty that, depressing. Over to you, Lewis. Is that along the same lines as, uh, as like modern uh, divology, like just calling humans basically uh, different uh, species of an, of an animal? Right, it's the same idea. In other words, so people, I think, don't grasp the psychological impact of what it, is, what it means uh, about not arguing the notion of evolution as perhaps a process whereby humanity has its origins, but rather the notion of unguided evolution, which means everything was just a pure coincidence. So when everything is a pure coincidence, it means that there's nothing fundamentally different between humans and animals, and there's no fundamental value, and then it breeds into this whole kind of society, which leaves us essentially worthlessness. But the, the ironic thing is, I don't know, I suppose social evolutionists have an explanation for it, I don't know, but the experience of life is humanity requires worth and the emotional connection towards self and towards others almost hinges on the premise that we have extra intrinsic worth. In other words, when I want to develop a relationship with you and um, let's say we have a really good time together and you've got a great sense of humor, I mean, you don't, but <laughs> so you've got a great and we hang out and then one day your sense of humor is off and I say Daniel listen I'd rather hang out with you and then you say do you mean you only hang out with me because I've got a good, good, good sense of humor I go hmm yeah that's the only reason so you'll get offended why do you get offended in other words in a world where things are measured by output and productivity when it's not producing so then ditch it but we understand that the relationship you'd want it to transcend that and then when you're in a nasty mood and you're already being disagreeable, I'm still going to stick by you. But what am I sticking by? The thing beyond the thing. The fact that I care about you. But what is the you? Well, it's not your sense of humor. It's not anything you can output. It's a fundamental, undefinable, incorruptible source of self. Are you not sticking by just because my sense of humor might return? And then You could be, but what happens if it never returns? And it's like, oh, I'm ditching you as a friend. You say, oh, you mean you never cared about me, don't you? Hmm. So, oh yes. so in other words, we process and we experience that the me is the something which is not anything that I can express or be, but something deeper than all of that. And that's what we were looking for in love and connection. Is that the soul or something? The, 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 the soul, soul, the self, the deeper part of being human, the transcendent part of so being human. Then, Over to you, Tuvia. Then what do you call the, the reaction that happens in our when we do something that is funny and then we feel good about ourselves or the reality that we It's, it's almost like it's, it's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit to the real thing. So self-esteem works, meaning if I get a lot of approval from other people, I will feel good about myself. If I'm extremely successful intellectually, I will feel good about myself. If I'm fabulously wealthy, I will feel good about myself. But that sense of feeling good about myself is temporary. It's an ersatz. It's a counterfeit experience of what real worth could feel like because it's temporary and it's externally orientated and it's, it's fickle. But you do need that. Do you? Well, you wouldn't have any ability to like enjoy anything or love other people or feel worth without actually feeling that surface level. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. If you look back in your life, Alvi, about the people that care about you the most, you'll notice that they care about you even when you're in a bad mood, even when you properly are nightmare to be around. And we know that that's happened <laughs> repeatedly for many years. So... <laughs> But the reason why you, that you know they love you is because, because of that. 
So when people love you for that reason, why can't you, why can't you love yourself for that reason? Do you understand? And, and, and so now you'll say to me, but then what motivates me? What motivates me is not approval and self-inflation, but direction and meaning. So say it's two people. Let's say when I come into this class, I'm in the process of, the, of this evolution. I'm far from it. So I still get a lot of, I still, I still cling on to approval because I'm not sufficiently refined enough to locate my identity purely in my source. So I get, I get a kick out of being approved. So when I walk into this classroom and I feel like everyone's engaged and they like what I'm saying, <laughs> I get, I get, I get lifted up by it. Um, but that's not good. That's not good. That's not good because it also it will, it will change. It will change the way I teach. Um, if I see people aren't focusing, I'll I'll maybe distort the message to get more to get more feedback, as opposed to just being genuine and authentic. So actually, this whole pursuit of, in my case, the need for approval to bolster myself or whatever it may be, can also be ruinous. So what is the way to do it? So let's say I'd come into this, into this room instead of seeking approval, because then actually in this, in, this, in this context, it actually becomes quite ironic. I look at you for me. It becomes a completely selfish endeavor. And I'm not here to teach. I'm here to get approval for what I say. And I'm just using it as a vehicle for my own approval, which means I'm going to have you as a secondary importance and me as a primary importance. That's unhealthy. So I want to switch it. What would that be like? It would be like, I recognize that in this moment, we have an opportunity to share some deep ideas and I would really love to use what I have and give it over to you. So it's either giving or taking experience. And when I give, it's not because I need you to approve me. No, I want to help you. And my whole life becomes then externally directed and not sucking in like a vacuum cleaner everything around me but pushing out everything like a powerful sun shining its light upon the world different way of being. it's like it's, it's radical how different the, so, this. Why, so why do we give people approval who's we pal face <laughs> you can only use the word I because the only person you know who is doing anything is I go on why do I I've heard, I've heard the idea that it, it, forget the idea who just say the words from your deep self stop dodging and weaving <laughs> Well, I'm coming why? back with a bit of fire. Hey? I'm sorry. I forgot why, to be nice why again. I, why would I give anyone, anyone any sort of compliments if they can get everything from themselves? Right. That's a great question. That is a great question. So you see, you see, like, as I said to you, people are in different stages of evolution, uh, of self-evolution. So what's, what's also interesting, I'm just going to strengthen your question. If our relationship with the other was purely to build them, mm-hmm. if a person came into my house I wouldn't offer him delicious food and cake and a comfortable bed because that's just sabotaging his growth. I'm engaging in giving him, I'm allowing him a temptation to the world of the material and sucking more him. But ironically, in our relationship to the other, we try to be the opposite to the way that growth suggests. So when it comes to welcoming a person in my house, I want to give him the most comfortable bed, the best room, set it up in the most incredibly enjoyable environment. I want the food to be top class. And then I want to treat him with utmost respect and treat him like he's a great man. All those things are sabotaging his growth. Isn't that interesting? Do you want an answer to that question? Yes, but are you going to give one? No. <laughs> I'm going to allow it to grow so you can nurture it. But it's a very important question. How come when we relate to growth, it's almost the opposite that we relate to the way that we the way they relate to ourselves in growth is the opposite way that we relate to the other in growth. Yeah. I mean, is it really sabotaging their growth if they learn from your 
uh, your actions and perform that to others? No, but more more likely, more likely, if I, if you come into my home and I give you a delicious, freshly baked, soft, slightly moist tray of brownies, <laughs> followed by some delicious, exotic summer fruits, mm. moving into the main course, moving into the main course, a delectably medium rare sirloin steak with perfectly crisp french fries accompanying a dash of salad so you can assuage your culture your your conscience for feeling guilty topped off by an ice cream dessert you're with me and you think i'm going to learn from his actions no you're not you're going to stuck yourself into the steak oh but then mm. i need the reason i learn what, what good hospitality looks like correct and Otherwise, if you know, if you if you put me in the dungeon and you mm. give me scraps, mm. um, I mean, it would build me, but I wouldn't mm. want to come back, and I wouldn't. Okay, but the question is, but, but okay, but maybe that's good. You understand? Like maybe it's good. Um, so you know, it's, it's fascinating. My son's in the army right now. He's not having good hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> They're not being nice to him. They're waking up in four four o'clock in the morning, and you've got forty seconds to be outside in a chet. 40 seconds. One of the nice things they did is they took them into a room which was filled with tear gas and they went in with gas masks and they had to take off the gas mask and then answer a series of questions. They are now on the, in, the, in the shooting range and they, they sleep outside, not in like hotel beds. <laughs> um, and as a result, I'm assuming that's going to build them and to, to, to like really make them strong and toughen them up. So I would suggest maybe as a new kind of direction in hospitality, when a person comes into our houses, we should tell them, clean the floors. Let's build them. And then give them a scrap of bread and tell them they don't even deserve it. <laughs> okay, so I'm just, I'm just kind of deepening his question. Let's not, let's not answer. Yes. There's a time and season for everything. There's a time for this and there's a time for that. Okay. Good. I mean, yes. Wisdom is like knowing when is is knowing time. Good. Good. Excellent. Excellent. But your answer is 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 good, but it's too generalized to be meaningful. Right. Right. That's right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So we have to. One of our ideas in, in, in this class is we are not a, we're not scared. In fact, we embrace the unanswered question because the unanswered question is probably one of our greatest assets and resources because it fires up our mind to become curious, to look around for information to resolve it. Whereas when the question is answered immediately, it uh, almost numbs the search for the answer. So the reason why I'm not answering the question is not that I don't have the answer, I mean, I don't. It's, 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 <laughs> so that I don't have the answers because it would be unhelpful to provide the answer immediately. Okay, so Ralph. So when you're talking about like the idea of giving things in order that would actually like stymie growth, like you talking about giving it to other people, whereas for yourself you wouldn't. My immediate thought was like, well, yeah, because I like look upon the other person that I want to give all these great things like such with like a lot of uh, like I build them up I think that they're such a great person they like those things even if they're they are things that would hurt me that like they can handle it they're good with it they deserve it whereas like maybe for myself not such a good idea 
they might try to do the same thing for me because they think of me highly versus themselves not not as maybe not as highly but like but that hurt but that hurts the uh, the self esteem point um so i think people differ right i think there there could be your approach and you give to other people you look at them as being you know having more than you have I think there are very many people that look at people around them having way less than they have. Uh, so that's a personal thing. It would be interesting to explore where that comes from. And, and as we go further in this idea, let's, 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 let's see and just check in with that. Mm-hmm. Yes, Emmett. Well, it struck me when you're, you're giving the example of, of hosting somebody. Yes. That usually, at least in my experience of you know, being with friends or hosting or something like that, that it's fairly temporary. It's a short period of time when you have to sort of you know, clean up and put on airs and make nicer food and so on. But then if it's for myself, like that's, I have to deal with me 24 seven. So it's, so it's so much more work and, and sort of time put in that I don't mind just, you know, I can speak, I don't mind doing more work for, you know, trying to impress somebody or however else. When I know, oh, okay, it's going to be like an hour, two hours. Then I can go back to my pajamas. Right. Um, good. So, so that's that, that that's that's an interesting idea. Meaning, you're saying that in in the degree and the consistency of what you what you need to do when you are um, engaged in helping other people. So it's because it's not as demanding over the course of time. So it's, it's you, you can do it. You can do it. But what I'm suggesting is. Yes, but there's something fundamentally wrong with doing it even then, or what Jonathan is suggesting, is why would you do that ever? Well, I think it's, it's that ideally you would do that all the time, but that's not so sustainable. I think quite opposite. I think when you relate to yourself, you're trying to build yourself. When you relate to others, in a sense, by you being so kind to them, you're collapsing them. But why would you want to collapse the other? Okay, leave it there. To bring us back to the point that we're discussing, which revolves around, before we get your question, Elvi, just hang on to that, just to have a quick, 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 quick recap. The Rambam has presented us with a very interesting notion, that if you do something wrong to someone else, some other person, you should openly, in a public forum, admit to what you've done wrong, explicitly stating the nature of the misdeed and not doing so means you're trapped in the paradigm of self-esteem. And that's how we got onto the concept of self-esteem in relation to this idea, which the Rambam calls Gava, which means as follows. Let's try to see how the Rambam is saying it. If my need for self is derived from approval, approbation, being the perfect me, there is no room for vulnerability because vulnerability will collapse the scaffolding that I've set up. And if my sense of self is derived from that scaffolding, from all those things externally, when I let go of them, I'll be destroyed. So I'll never admit to anything that I've done wrong because it's the threat of my entire existence. If I'm worthless, it means I'm not worth existing. So ironically, 
the beginning point of having the capacity to be vulnerable and to openly admit who I am, to be authentic and genuine, requires shedding this shell of scaffolded, um, inflated self based on external factors, deeply embracing the fact that there is nothing in the world that can make me unworthy when my sense of self is orientated in my neshama, in my deeper core. And when I have that sense of self, of worthiness, then I will be given the capacity to admit I've done stuff wrong. Because when I admit I've done some of the stuff wrong, what happens? What happens? Nothing happens. I just clarify. I become more close. I become more genuine. I actually get closer to myself. So ironically, by me admitting my faults is a form of self-reclaiming. I retrieve my essence. And by hiding my faults, I distance myself from my essence in a quirky turnabout about how things work. So I think that's a very powerful idea in the, in the context of vulnerability in admitting what I've done wrong becomes a key component of the chuva process. Through that, I can regain an unabridged access to who I am and not worry about I'm only this person depending on what others think about me and allowing myself to be defined by my projection of what other people are thinking about me in their minds, which of course could be utterly wrong. Isn't that beautiful? Getting a question from Daniel Lewis. Is that idea that you, know, that that you can increase your worth um, consistent with the Rambam's idea that you, you know, when, you, when you feel this vulnerability, you return to your, to your original self? You cannot increase your worth. Your worth is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a incomprehensible eternal value. All you can do is access it more or less, express it more or less. So the return is not a return to a trumping up of creating more worth, but a recollection, a reconnection and a, a, and a revealing of what is there already. So your worth is your worth. It's unchangeable, but how, however much you, you, must allow to shine into this world, you know, however little, however much. Imagine an analogy. It's the sun behind a set of blinds. And the blinds, like these Venetian blinds, which you can just, you can, you can actually pull the string and then they open up into slits and then the sun shines through, but you can grade how much sun shines through. So that's really what's happening. But the sun's always there, but it can be completely, completely obscured and it can be opaque or it can be totally transparent. Over to you, Tovs. Um, Perhaps a better analogy is the windows which tint. You know the new windows on on air airplanes, mm-hmm. so they they no longer have shutters. I'm saying, go traveling, mate. Robert, we can only access um, more worth. I we have eternal worth, and we can only access you know so much of it. And the way how we do that is how through our actions. Because then we get a bit of a dilemma, because if the way how we access our self-worth is through our actions, then how are we judging our self-worth? Good, 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 good. Excellent question. Simply from this Rambam right here, it's by having the ability to admit what you've done wrong in public. We are going to be having a session tomorrow doing that, so just I want you people to like kind of refresh yourself about all the things you've done wrong recently. Um, 
And then, you know, yeah. Well, I'm going to need a double session. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, I think that's, that, 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 that's, uh, that's a good idea for you to, to start pondering on. We'll, we'll take a little bit further tomorrow. But uh, great to be with you again. And looking forward to, as they say in the classics, a gesunter summer, which means a healthy summer. Thank you.